Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Literary Salon has been a tradition at LitFest, featuring three or more speakers with varying perspectives on a theme, along with audience participation. Show us a failed writer and we'll show you, well, a writer. Our esteemed panelists, Jenny Shank, Rachel Weaver, Paula Younger, and Andre Debuse III, offer strategies for coping with rejection and tips on filtering feedback, whether it be from friends and family, teachers, editors, or reviewers. people were here for the Steve Allman Salon? Anybody? So you heard his interpretation of all the topics that we're doing for our salons. The failure, rejection, bewilderment, um, darkness. What else is there? Smackdown. We have violence. We have darkness, depression, prison. And so this is this is the one, as Andre aptly put it, about losers. <laughs> but I do want to say, oh, by the way, I'm Andrea. I know a lot of you. I am now going to introduce this fine panel and get off the stage, the failure and rejection panel. <laughs> um, and I'm doing this in alphabetical order, just so you know. Andre Debuse the third. Try to pick him out. <laughs> he is the author of most recently Dirty Love, a New York Times notable book and editor's choice and lauded by none other than Anthony Doerr, who I found out um, Andre finally is able to read. You've read about half of his oh, I'm novel. Loving it. He's guys, loving it. All the light we cannot see. Yeah. Really God. good book. It's so Pretty. good when the right book wins that fucking award. <laughs> <laughs> so just so you know, F-bombs will be dropped. Um... Of his six previous books, The House of Sand and Fog was a finalist for the National Book Award. And his memoir, Townie, in addition to being really kick-ass, you should read it, uh, was a New York Times Editor's Choice bestseller. So moving on alphabetically, we take quite a leap alphabetically, actually, um, to Jenny Shank's novel. The Ringer won the High Plains Book Award and was a finalist for the Mountains and Plains Independent Booksellers Award. Her stories, essays, and hilarious short pieces have appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, McSweeney's, Prairie Schooner, Alaska Quarterly, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Jenny Shank. necessary for me to do that move, but I like it. Um, Rachel Weaver is the author of the novel Point of Direction, which is also on sale back there, as in addition to all these books that I'm talking about. Um, described by Oprah Magazine as a, quote, strikingly vivid vivid <laughs> debut novel. Her stories have also appeared in Gettysburg Review, Blue Mesa Review, Bombay Gin, and elsewhere. Miss Rachel Weaver. Um, Polly Younger's soon-to-be-finished novel, Here with the Saints. I didn't write that. You did, or somebody did. Um, <laughs> I have a soon-to-be-finished novel, too. As long as soon means 2025. Um, <clears throat> Here with the Saints was one of the fi- uh, five finalists for the Virginia Kirkus Literary Award. 
Nice job. A finalist in the William Faulkner Novel in Progress competition. I've heard of him, and he's no slacker. Um, The Santa Fe Writers Award and the Dana Award for the novel. Stories from her collection set in Egypt have appeared in the HarperCollins ebook, 40 Stories, the Chicago Tribune's Printer's Road Journal, and Penn's The Rattling Wall. Her essays have appeared in the Nervous Breakdown and Georgetown Review. Give it up for Paula Younger. I'm going to turn it over now to Jenny Shank, who's going to get serious. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm Jenny Shank, and I'm a a rejected failure. (laughs) Uh, Hi, Jenny. (laughs) So... Um, we that what she just read the highlights are a con, very condensed version of many many failures that led led to those few things that we get to put on our biographies. Um, so we're each going to talk a little bit just about our ideas about this topic or our personal stories about this topic, and then maybe I'll ask a few questions. Maybe you will ask a few questions. Um, I want you guys to get into this. So we'll start. Let's start with Andre and just go down. Oh, all right. Hi, everybody. How are you? I think I, you know, I love that. Uh, I think it's a great opening line for a song by Chris Isaacs. There's a long list of what's wrong with me. I, I love that. I think it'd be a great novel. Just a list. Everything that's wrong. Um, so I, I want to talk about both kinds of failure. The 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 career failure and then the writerly failure. I am much more interested in the writerly failure. Uh, that's what I'm much more interested in talking about. We don't have to. But I do want to tell you first about the... No, I'll tell you about, no, I'll tell you about the career failure. <laughs> All right, so I'm an 18-year overnight success. Um, I began... Uh, I'm 55 years old. I've been writing every day since I was 22. I've only published six books. I've written maybe 11. And just about everything I've published... I think everything are, are, are really the phoenixes that have risen from the ashes of what failed every single one every single no there was one my first fucking short story published in 1984 um i wrote in four weeks i thought oh this is cool four weeks sold a playboy magazine two grand which was 1900 dollars more than i ever had in my life this is cool i could i just write one of these a month i'm like sitting back i'm a writer that never happened again and so my first, um, my first book is a collection of stories that came out in 1989 that three people read, and two of them were my mother. And, and, they went, and it went to 39 publishers over five years. 39 publishers said no. And out of the uh, three, so there are seven stories in the collection, and out of the three, so, and three of those seven were published in, in magazines or quarterlies. And for those three yeses, I had 117 um, thank you, no you're a loser. And that's a normal proportion, I think. I had 117 no's to three yeses. So 39 publishers said no to the first book. Um, my second book, which is my first novel, but the third I'd written, um, went to 29 publishers over almost three years. And, and then it got published. And then four people read it, and three of them were my mother. And... <laughs> And then the book that put me on the literary map is this novel, House of Sand and Fog, which uh, took me four years to write in a parked car in a graveyard not far from my house. I was a carpenter and an adjunct writing teacher, a member of the Migrant Farm Workers of Academia. 
And, um, and that's when Andrea was my grad student those years. And so I was writing House Sand and Fog. Um, it went to 24 publishers over two and a half years. And then it got published, and then it really took off. And then things have been easier for me in that way since because it was so successful. Um, but I have to say that is 93 publishers for three books over almost 20 years. And so my opening thought is, and I'm going to pass the mic now, but I want to get into the artistic failures, which I think are even more important to talk about. Um, but I, it seems to me, I, I read the description of our panel. That's my prep. I read the description. Okay. <laughs> now I know what we're talking about, and I went for a run. But <laughs> did I just say this out loud? It's true. Um, but I want to say this. I think you know it's an old story, but it's true. If you if if the if if someone asks you, can you go? One of the things that happens that I think that people come to conferences for and go to MFA programs for, and it's an understandable human natural need, is you're hoping some older, maybe famous writer will anoint you. Yes, you have it. I'm afraid you don't. You do, and then you know that okay, I can do this. And it's the wrong approach because what do they know? The truth is, if you can go a year without writing and you feel just fine, well, you're probably not a writer. Big deal. Good. Now you can do something else. But if you can't go three or four days without writing, without feeling, I feel as if I can't go three straight days without writing. I feel as if my body walks three steps that way and my soul is lingering behind and it's getting really cranky. And I'll end with a quote by Thomas Williams, the wonderful novelist who's not read enough. Read The Hair of Harold Rue, which won the National Book Award in 1975. It's a great novel about writing, by the way. And Williams was asked once, Mr. Williams, why do you write? He said, oh, that's easy. I, I write so I don't die before I'm dead. And that's what it's all about. If that's your answer, who cares about rejection, man? You're lucky to have something that makes you feel so alive. Your turn. Um, okay, so I thought I would just share with you the condensed version of my journey, which includes way more failure than success. Um, <clears throat> so I was working in Alaska as a wildlife biologist. I was studying bears. They go to sleep in the winter, which meant I had a couple months off. <laughs> it gets very dark there and rainy and cold. Um, and I was living in a very small town. The um, sun goes down around 1 in the afternoon. The only places that are open in town are the bar and the library. And so, logically, I went to the bar every day for the first winter, because that's what everybody else did, too, right? And, you know, it's pretty boring, and uh, not many people were left in town. There's about 800 of us that stayed year-round. Um, and so after an entire winter of drinking from starting at 1 in the afternoon, pretty much every day, I thought, you know what? I need a freaking hobby. And I had always wanted to write a book, and I was a huge reader always my whole life, but I was a scientist, and I thought, well, if you're a scientist, you can't be a writer. But I thought, well, I need to do something, and so I'll write a book. And so... Um, I started, and I wrote... Well, I lived in this cabin that you had to hike down this steep, slick mountain to get to. Um, there was no running water, no electricity. Um, <clears throat> I was right on the beach, 
And uh, so I would get up in the morning and it would be freezing cold. And I had this really old laptop that would get really hot. And so I'd sit it on my lap and it would keep me warm for about two hours <laughs> and uh, until the battery died. And then I would go into town and the city, all the city, everything was in one office, in one building. So the library and the DMV and all that. Um, but the library didn't open until noon, but the building opened at eight for all the other city offices. So I would go to the library and I would sit outside the closed door and I would plug in and steal their electricity and sit in the hallway and write this book until they felt sorry enough for me that they actually gave me my own office. <laughs> I like, cleared out a bunch wow. of stuff. And, um, but I was, so then I was at the bar one day at, you know, like 1.15 with my friend. <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't know what's wrong with all these fucking people. I'm going to be done with the book. You know, like, it takes them like 10 years. How can this take 10 years? I'm going to be done in like three months. And sure enough, I was. And then the bears woke up and I went back to work. And I worked a ton. The winters are very, or the summers are very busy there, filling your freezer and stacking your wood and all that business working. And then the next, um, su- or the next winter came around and I thought, well, I should maybe read that book that I wrote last winter. <laughs> and so I started reading it and it was horrible. <laughs> Because then I was reading it as a reader, right? Because when you're writing, you're reading as a writer, and you think it's awesome, which is good. Um, but it was it was not good. And so I thought, well, I don't know how to fix that one, so I'll just start another one. So I wrote three books in the time that I was in Alaska, um, all first drafts, all crazy, messy, messy, bad, bad, um, but a lot of material. Um, and then I came to eventually... Um, decided that I wanted to focus more on my writing because I loved it. There was I had there I, there had never been anything in my life that I had loved more than creating this story, and I was so addicted, and I just wanted to learn how to do it better. And I knew it could be better. I had no idea how, but I knew that I would work at it until it got better and hopefully good one day. And so I I moved down here to grad school, started revising. I've been revising for, I don't know, 12 years straight, um, these three books. And um, so my process was similar, although I got to beat. My first book went out to, well, I queried 75 agents. Uh, One said yes. Um, She was very mean grandmother type lady. Um, (laughs) And she, but she worked very hard for me. I very much appreciated what she did. She sent it to 43 publishers. Wow. Um, they all said no, very politely. Um, <clears throat> and then she read 10 pages of my second book, said she hated it, and ditched me within two days. <laughs> so in the meantime, I had been revising my second one. And so that one I decided I'd always, I love Milkweed Press. It's my favorite, favorite small press. And so I thought, well, they take unsolicited, uns- they take, they did at the time. I don't know if they still do. Um, they took manuscripts from a, from unagented people. So they had my manuscript for uh, over a year. They published 12 books that year. Mine was number 13, which they told me, which I don't know was supposed to make me feel better or worse. I don't know. Made me feel really bad. So in the meantime, I was revising the third one. And um, that one, um, I queried 150 agents. Uh, there were three or two that were interested and then a third called and just right off the bat said I want I want to represent this book it's amazing but it needs to be totally rewritten are you on board for that and I was like oh yeah I mean I'd already written it like 20 times and so sorry Jenny I'm hurrying I'll be done soon okay okay so um okay so uh meanwhile I'm seven weeks sorry seven months pregnant with twins 
and on bed rest. And she was like, this is going to take a ton of work. Are you like, are you up for this? And I didn't tell her that I was pregnant because I thought for sure she would just be like, no freaking way. No, I'm out. And so I just didn't tell her. I thought, well, I'll figure it out. I'm sure. I mean, I didn't have any kids before this. I thought, well, you know, like one baby, two babies is probably about the same. It's not, it's not, it's not. So there were um, exactly 20 minutes in between feeding one and getting him down, feeding the other one, getting him down, 20 minutes, and then it started over for five months. Five months. And so I would write in those 20 minutes. Um, I had a board in front of me. I would outline um, while I was breastfeeding. I would outline and take all these notes, like thinking very clearly on these, you know, like basically zero sleep. <laughs> And so I rewrote the book once. She sent me an email very quickly back and said, um, no, this you're really not fixing anything at all, actually. Um, you need these big global changes. You're not doing it. And so I tried again. Um, and I really did try very hard that time. Um, the boys, I think they're about, they started sleeping a little bit more, so I had a little more time. Anyway, so I sent it to her again. She sends me another email back, and she says this time the boys were six months old. They were both in my lap, and I read the email, and I thought for sure she was going to be like, yes, you did it. It's time to go. We're going to sell it. You're going to make a million bucks. And uh, she said, you know, you're just, you're not going to pull it off with this novel. I think you just need to put this one away and call me when the next one is done. And so we all three cried. <laughs> My husband was at work. He works 48-hour shifts, so he was gone. So we cried for a long... We cried for, like, 48 hours, I think. <laughs> and, um, and so then I said... I asked her after, like, a week. I composed myself enough to send her a two-sentence email, and I said, can I have eight months and one more chance? And she said yes. And so um, by then, the boys were sleeping more. I really focused... Um, and my husband is a firefighter. He is not a writer, but he's very creative, and he is his most creative at three beers. And so we went out for beers, and at the three-beer mark, I was like, okay, just disrupt it. Throw something crazy in there and disrupt it. I just need it totally turned on its head, and so he was so excited. He was like, okay. He's a big idea man. You know, he's like, all right, what if this guy is that guy is that? And I was like, no, that guy's not that guy. And he's like, but what if? And he had all these ideas. Most of them were terrible. One was it, and I knew it from the minute he said it. I knew that was what needed to happen, and it meant a total rewrite from page one, just a whole new book. And uh, so I ended up with my head on the bar, and he kept drinking. <laughs> so then I... Um, <clears throat> So I spent eight months rewriting. I sent it off to her. She sends me an email back with nothing in the subject line. <laughs> and I was at work. At this time, I was working as a scientist um, at an aerospace engineering firm. I worked the second shift. We were building these small little parts that were going up on the Mars rover. This is the Curiosity Mars rover that went up years ago. Um, <clears throat> so I was working by myself at one end of the lab. There's one other guy. It took me an hour to open the email. It was like 11 at night. And I um, finally opened it, and I started screaming in capital letters. It said, you did it. Call me tomorrow. And I started screaming. And, my <laughs> and so then the guy comes running. The guy I was working with comes running across the lab because he thought I busted the Mars rover, right? He's <laughs> like, what? But it wasn't that I broke the Mars rover. It was that after 10 years, 10 years, finally, it was the yes. It was the yes. And um, so that's my story. Well, that's a lovely redemptive story. Is this work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels weird to be too close. Okay. Um, so I'm still the rejected failure. <laughs> um, and I feel like. No, you're not. 
<laughs> no, it's fine. And I teach here at Lighthouse. I teach the short story class. And I am definitely interested in the artistic failure, like Andre is talking about. But I do feel like the career failure is very important to talk about because I think it's that kind of deep, dark secret people hide and they don't share. And we can get really alienated and isolated as writers and feel like failures and hold ourselves back. And I'm going to be sexist for a moment, but I feel like women especially do this. And I've been seeing so many articles over and over and over, like on Facebook and everywhere, about how women writers are treated differently, but also how women writers submit differently. And I feel like a lot of women, when they're rejected, just kind of internalize, or even if they get the encouraging reject, they kind of take their time to send in again. And I know I do that, too. Like, I've got the perfectionist streak. And so I feel like if we just share these things, it can help us propel ourselves as writers and to do more of our artistic writing. And I also agree with Andre, like, you know, I could not stop writing. And that's always the thing I try to remind myself is it doesn't matter so much what I accomplish in my career because... I'm going to be writing anyway, so I'd rather just not waste all that time of like feeling bad or rejected or sorry for myself. But um, you know, unlike Rachel, like I've been a writer all my life. Yeah, I started writing seriously in third grade. (laughs) Yeah, I remember my teacher. We had our little library and like little library cards, and my wedding series was the most popular. All the kids checked it out. I hired an illustrator with a Snickers bar because my drawings sucked. You know, and I was sure I was destined for success. And then when I was 12, I wrote this terrible schoolgirl series. And I'd be like at my family's like first Mac ever, like typing it up and printing it on those dot matrix printers. And I remember writing my career letters like, who better to write for 13 year olds than a 13 year old? <laughs> and I'd go to the library at my Catholic school, like, or like my teachers would help me. And I'd look it all up and I'd mail it to the publishers. And looking back, I'm like, where the hell were my parents? <laughs> Why was there no help? <laughs> and, you know, and I'd be just devastated. Like, I grew up on a farm in North, North Colorado, and I'd walk my quarter-mile driveway to the mailbox, and I'd get the New York mail, and I'd be so excited, and then it'd just be rejection. And some of them were very, very sweet, like, looking back on it. And then, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to be a success. And in my family, I come from big overachievers. I'm the youngest of four. It's like this German Catholic, hardworking farm people. And we had our farm. Like, you had to be up early every morning, like, riding the horses, feeding everything, taking care of everything, which is why I think I don't want to take care of anything now. Although I have two young kids. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> so I'm still taking care of it. But, um, you know, my brother's a doctor. My sister is an electrical engineer. My other sister has her PhD in computer science and is doing all the software stuff. My mom is a chemical engineer at Rocky Flats, and my dad is a math teacher at Front Range. And I thought I was so rebellious and cool. be like, no, screw science, screw math. <laughs> and I'm different. And, you know, even, like, I studied at CU Boulder. I graduated in three years. And, you know, I was Phi Beta Kappa, did the great grades. And I did work in software industry. I was a project manager by the age of 22. And I was sure I was so smart and brilliant. And I went to grad school at University of Virginia, which was like top three. I had a full paid fellowship. And all of us would get together and talk about how our books are going to be published any day now, how brilliant we are, la, la, la. And then it's like, you know, nothing happens. (laughs) And my book, um, you know, I've had a lot of different versions of it. I've just dumped off versions and done a whole new version and Jenny's my support group, hopefully. <laughs> I'm close, and this will finally be published. And through that time, like, I did my Egyptian short story collection that I'm still working on. Like, I set the novel aside. Like, I was getting nice rejects. I was placing as a finalist in contests, but I knew there was something wrong with it, and I didn't know what to do with it, so I sent it to my friend and my writing group. 
And it was just so much fun to just set it aside and get on the plane and go to Egypt. And I remember thinking, if I get one story out of this, I'll be so happy. Just one successful short story. And, you know, now I have three published short stories from it. I have ideas for, like, you know, 12, hopefully, so I can get the collection. I have essays that I write, too. And there's some essays I want to write about Egypt as well. So it was just really nice and freeing just to take a break from it, not to think about the book, not to have the pressure of the book, and just to enjoy a different experience. And a lot of my writing is always about loss and religion and family. And in Egypt, since I was teaching at a Coptic Catholic seminary, you know, I had my face in religion every day. I had my face in sexism every day. I mean, I love those seminarians, but there was always something being said or upsetting, and I was always making a mistake too, and I mistakenly thought being a married woman there would give me more respect, but actually would have been better if I wasn't married, because there's all these questions like, why don't you have a child? And my first day in class, like, I showed pictures of my dog, which is saying, like, this, like, practice for, like, if I ever decide to have a child, and then I have these questions about, like, why dogs? Why do Westerners love animals more than people? And, and I was told that they pray for my soul because of my dog. <laughs> And so, but it was nice just to put it aside, and I think I do have the version now. But um, one of my failures in that was it was one of five finalists for the Virginia Kirkus Award Contest. And I was so excited. I was like, Kirkus liked my book. It's a big deal. They're a big reviewer. And then, and I was just so happy. I didn't think I'd win, but I was like, oh, I always get to be one of five finalists. But um, the publisher, and I'm blanking on who it was, decided that none of the books were worthy enough, and they didn't publish anybody, and then they closed the contest. <laughs> And that just felt worse. It was like such an insult. <laughs> and it felt like such a big victory. And then I was like, oh my God, I am so bad. I ruined a contest. <laughs> and so I think these things can happen to us and they can just sidetrack us for a while. And I think we never share them. And we do do our bios and try to be impressive when we have all these great credentials. And when I did become a mother, I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. One of my friends told me, and it was really great advice, that just beware other mothers lie. And it's true. They lie. <laughs> they lie about if they're sleeping through the night. Like, they lie all these things. And I remember I was like a music class with my kids, and one of the other mothers said, Oh, what I love about you, Paul, is you're always so honest. <laughs> you're always like telling how horrible it is being a parent. I was like, Oh, what am I saying? <laughs> but, you know, a lot of times the short stories, some of my short stories when they're published, like the one that was just the Chicago Tribune, it was rejected, I think, 70 times. And it still landed at a great place to be published. Um, one of my short stories, I was in the HarperCollins ebook, which there are a lot of great writers in that. That one, I think, was put, like rejected 60 times. And so, and some of them happened faster, like the Rattling Wall one. Like Jenny sent me that link. It went quicker. But I think we just, we keep these things into ourselves. We internalize. We don't share with people because we're ashamed of it. And I think we just kind of share our failures and just share how hard the career aspect of it is and just keep submitting then we're going to get those victories more often. So that's why I was interested in this panel, is just to share all my failures. <laughs> and hopefully get all of you submitting more, and not to use that against whether you're good or not. And one of my favorite examples, too, is you probably all know, like, um, Horned Men, by Carl Toe Greenfield, who was in Best American Short Stories. And I love him for putting this in his bio. He, his short story is put in Best American Short Stories. Best story of the year. Every journal rejected that story even the journal that published it. You know, he waited until there was a new editor. <laughs> <laughs> 
and he put that in his bio. And I think if more people do that, we can be more inspired. And and you didn't even dawn on me. Submit to the same journal. Like, and I actually did make a mistake. Like I submitted one short story in my sleep deprived fog to the Missouri Review, and they sent me back a quick reject. And I sent the same story again like three months later, like just because I wasn't paying attention. And then they sent me back this detailed rejection and how it went to the final round, how they really discussed. I'm like, well, what the hell? Like I just got the like form reject like three months ago. <laughs> So you don't even know who's reading it. And I know, like, you know, I don't have an agent yet, and unlike these lovely people who do. And so you just don't know who's reading your work, and you're just putting yourself in that slush pile. You're just putting yourself out there. So just keep putting yourself out there. Keep sending. If editors change or it's enough time, send it again, just with a different title. <laughs> and so now I'm going to move on to Jenny. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Paula, you're not, a, you're not a failure to me. This is why Paula is why I published my first book. She helped me, and also Andre too, because uh, when I was in a dark place, I would have House of Sand and Fog on my desk, and when I get stuck, I would read from it until I could write, and then you we would all fucking die. Yes, <laughs> and then you would look at what I did and say, "Do better. You can do better than this," and I would. um, so I have like similar stories of 10 year agony with books and um, also of writing after you have a baby my I got one hour you win the twin person wins (laughs) 20 minutes yeah Um, but I I wanted to say that a lot of my friends that are great writers um, I feel like they give up too soon and I wanted you to know just how many rejections you have to get in order, order to win like uh, someone who's a great writer will tell me, oh, yeah, I'm submitting. And I'm like, well, how many places? And they'll be like, five. <laughs> I'll be like, what? Talk to me when you've done 100 places because that's when it, when it starts. And, you know, a, a good baseball player gets a hit three times out of 10, but a good writer gets a hit three times out of 100, maybe. Um, the odds are really long, and you've got to get out there and you've got to submit. Um, so it's hard to take the rejection and keep on going. So I've, di- I've given myself a split personality, which I, I wrote about um, an article in Poets and Writers that came out when my, my first book was published. It's, I say as if there will be a second, I hope. Uh, <laughs> I hope. There is. She's working on it. Yeah. Okay. So this is wh- how I did it. I turned my publication, Seeking Activities, over to a fragment of my personality, Let's call him Johnny Business. (laughs) While the rest of me didn't think about it, didn't worry about it, and went about my days without pining over it. What Johnny Business does is none of my business. (laughs) Johnny Business looks like a member of the 1993 Phillies, bearded, mulleted, carrying a little extra around the middle. He wears a tracksuit, in part for style, but mainly for comfort because what he mostly does is wait. Johnny Business keeps a spreadsheet of my submissions. My CPA relatives taught him how to use Excel. (laughs) He scans the internet to keep up on what's going on. He sends out stories ten at a time. Sometimes he ships something back to me for revisions. Because he has this organized spreadsheet, he can feed me stats, such as, did you know that you had been sending out different versions of that story that was published in Prairie Schooner for seven years? (laughs) And I submitted to them twice, too. The second time they took it. <laughs> he, um, he tells me that the one that just appeared in Alaska Quarterly Review was only six years old, so I'm bringing my average down. Sometimes Johnny Business comes across descriptions of grants that say, 
There is no application process. <laughs> that means that some sort of secret committee gets together and decides on these things. Johnny Business doesn't go to any secret committee meetings. He doesn't have the right shoes. <laughs> He's strictly a slush pile worker, a ham and egger, a dirt dog. So each, <laughs> each of you need a Johnny Business and your art person. La, 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 I'm working on my art. Johnny Business is over here doing this, and you're separate. And you don't um, worry about that part of it until, until he says, okay, you need to do a revision. Otherwise, you're separate people. Um, the paradox of persisting as, at a, as a writer is that you have to be humble enough to know when you need to revise it or when it's not right, and yet arrogant enough to keep, to keep going with it. Um, so you have to be proud enough not to be crushed by this rejection. Um, so in the famous Hemingway quote, quote that came in an interview with George Plimpton, he said, the most essential gift for a good writer is a built-in shockproof shit detector. This is the writer's radar, and all great writers had it. I think he was referring to your ability to look at your work and um, tell whether you are bullshitting in any part of it. But I think this also applies to detecting bullshit and feedback that you get in rejections and from editors. Um, here's an example. So when I was looking for an agent for my novel, um, first you send an air, a query letter. You get excited if they want to read 50 pages. And then you, you send them the 50, and then they want the whole thing. You get really excited because, oh, someone that I don't know is reading it, and whatever they say will be the word of God. <laughs> and <laughs> so for one of them, I got this rejection who read my entire novel. Dear Ms. Shank, thanks for giving me the opportunity to consider Mile High, of which I've now read a considerable portion. I think you are a good writer, both polished and smart. It's hard to say exactly why this isn't for me. In the end, there's something about the texture and tone of the narrative that, on a raw, elemental level, left me unmoved. Your voice is accomplished, but the emotional scope falls short for me. This really is the most objective business in the world, and I have to feel inspired in order to get behind a book. I'm certain another agent will be more enthusiastic, and to that end, I do wish you the best. It's so typical. Yes, yes. And so that one hurt, because I felt that he had read my book and that it was um, specific, not 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 a form letter. But then... I get, a le- I get an email a few months later from my buddy Paula because we confess our rejections to each other. We're Catholic. When we, when we give them up, when we give them up to someone else, we are forgiven. <laughs> so I get, I get this email from Paula and she, said, she had been querying agents and she, she put a preamble on the rejection. The emotional scope part is a bit disturbing. Man, I hate this business. And I read her rejection. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to consider Help Us St. Jude, of which I've now read a considerable portion. There's something about the texture and tone of the narrative that left me unmoved. Exact same words, which is slimy to pass off a form rejection as a personalized rejection. Slimy. And there are slime out there. Like, at least if you know it's, it's form, it should be form. It should just say, thank you for your time. It shouldn't, like, critique your work when it's fake. But they do. So watch out. (laughs) That's why you need to submit to 100 agents like we did. Um, And then here's... But this is not the worst rejection thing I've ever seen. Paula and I have a friend, Jesse Alvarez, who's an amazing writer, a true artist. 
Um, she has her own literary magazine called Digging Through the Fat, and um, she writes just beautiful Chekhovian, uh, brilliant pieces. And she writes sometimes about children. And her, but when she writes about children, it's a badass story about children. Um, she, she writes with stripped-down prose, so it doesn't have any frills. So if you're not reading carefully, you think, oh, this is simple. But of course it's not simple. So, but, and I think of her as a badass, so when she is shaken by, by a rejection, I'm worried. Because I'm like, you're the badass. You're the one that never shakes. But she sent us this rejection she got. Hi, Jesse. This story written from a child's perspective about her family doesn't really have the kind of overall development that we like to publish at Fjord's Review. <laughs> That's the real name. <laughs> Simply put, it's too simple for our readership. And I feel it, this would be better for a magazine like Highlights or Cricket. <laughs> feel free to send us something in six months. I wrote Jesse back. This guy is 21 years old. He's from New York. And we should all bomb him with subscription to Cricket. <laughs> Just subscribe and subscribe into Cricket until he doesn't know what's coming out of his mailbox. <laughs> but Jesse was like much more proactive, and she and once we said no, this story is awesome, and he's insane. She sent it out um, to another place, and she got it published, and she was even a finalist for a story prize with it. So, ladies, you're going to be condescended to. Pe- people are going to say asshole things to you, especially ladies. Uh, they're going to say, why don't you publish in Cricket? And you just need to have a friend that you can send it to, the rejection to, and they can say, this is insane. And then you keep going. <laughs> so, um, so that's all I wanted to say about that. And then I think we should move on to Andre's wanting to talk about the artistic failures that we've done. Like, for example, I've, I've written a couple books that before the one that was published that I decided weren't going to go and I just gave up on them but after many many years and that's hard to do after you put that many years in it but what did you want to say about it Andre? well I first want to comment on some of what I've heard from you all because I identify with everything even the lady stuff <laughs> because here's my lady thing I'm the son of a great writer with the same name so I'm his wife and let me tell you I'm not nearly as respected and so that's a whole other story I'll get to later but there's a wonderful line from George Garrett, the, the writer, who was talking about you know, really how we get our feelings hurt and how we get horrible rejections like that. I mean, some of the rejections I got were, um, seems to be a lot of the same territory as your father, but not nearly as good. That really hurts your feelings, you know, and uh, really bad, right? And so... Let me just speak to that for a second. Let me finish the George Garrett thing. So all of this, I, I, I especially admire, um, Paula, how honest you were with, uh, not Paula, yeah, uh, yeah, Paula, how honest you were with, with just how vulnerable we can feel. But I love what Garrett said, and this is, and I think he's right on. When you start to feel that writerly envy, um, Jealousy, hurt feelings, vulnerability, you, when you really begin to believe that you are nobody and you never will be. What he said was, look, contend with all of that stuff in your head, but don't let it go to your heart. And, and that's all I'm saying, too. You've, you've got to just keep it all here. 
And that's easier said than done. But you've got to – the only way to keep it from going here is to stop being an American citizen. And I need to, st- I need to speak about this for a second. We are a culture. This conversation would be different in Italy and, frankly, Egypt because – we are a culture that still – it's a capitalistic, individual, individualistic culture. It's got some good parts. A lot suck. What I really hate about this culture is it divides its citizens into winners or losers. Who are winners? They tend to be white males with money. It's still true. Who are the losers? Poor people and dark-skinned people and gay people and fat people and crippled people, on and on. Don't think for a second this doesn't pollute the shit out of your artistic muse. We must fight this. We're not here to be winners. We're not here to be successes. We're here to be alive. And, and that's why I feel very strongly we have to somehow contend with all of this in the head. And believe me, I, I feel everything that I've been hearing. Me too. My husband um, is French. And right? his, his rel- even before I published anything, his relatives were like, oh, how beautiful that you write. Like I had never published anything. And they saw me as sort of a romantic hero, but an unpublished writer writer here is seen as a sort of bum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And and, and it's my theory, it's my theory as to why so many people go get MFAs, because their sister is, and brother is, and father is, and mother are. And so, okay, it's going to take me 10 years to maybe write a book that's publishable, but at least I have that MFA above my desk. I have a terminal degree. I'm not a loser. And you might have been better off waitressing at Dunkin' Donuts and writing all day instead of putting up with MFA bullshit, which is a whole other thing. I just want to quote, I'm not all against MFAs. I I think that it's way overdone, and and people are, and too often we get to be too good a student, and we should be just listening to this and not all the noise. Um, It can be very helpful noise. I just want to quote Nadine Gordimer, a line from one of her characters. Uh, It's a woman... Uh, from her novel, A Son's Story, and she has an insight into what sincerity is. She said, oh, sincerity is never having an idea of oneself. Isn't that beautiful? You don't have an eye on the mirror to see how you're doing. You're not watching yourself. That's such an American approach, and I'm just, I have it as bad as everyone. I'm going to end my thought on this. The thing about being the great son's name, Hank Jr. of American friggin' Lit... (laughs) That sucked because I grew up with my single mother, didn't even live with my father. There's this understanding. And the three on there, and the the, like I grew up rich when I grew up fucking poor and moved 14 times, got out of high school. And lucky I didn't end up in prison or dead like all my friends. Um, Is this. I got so much shit at the career level, like this isn't as good as your father or – like this, for example, a novel I spent four years writing gets a really good review in the library journal, thank God. And it says, by the author of, and they list all my father's books. And they just stole the book I spent writing at four in the morning on a fucking construction van on the way to construction jobs. And something snapped inside me, you guys, that day. I realized, I mean, I cried and yelled and kicked things for a couple of days. And, you know, I was driving home from a reading. And after the reading... Everybody was asking me just questions about my father. It was my second book. Nobody asked. It was just, I, I identify with being a woman and a wife. <laughs> I'm married to dad. And, and I didn't even grow up with him. And, and, I'm, and, and I'm driving home thinking not one question was about the book I just read to them from. They were all about my father. I don't blame him. I love his work too. I'll never be that good. But I still have to write to be me. And I see Stoneham five miles, Lawrence ten miles. I go, I'll be Stoneham Lawrence. That's my name. I have to change my name. <laughs> I'm going to be Stoneham Lawrence. <laughs> and what I'm getting at is, so, so believe me, I'm, I'm with all the hunger here. But as soon as I 
as soon as that review gave the book to my old man, and I felt bad for him because he would have written a better book, um, I, I realized I didn't care. Something really important happened inside, I have to say, my soul, which was, I don't care. I'm still, I still know that a fucking Tuesday in February is ten times better when I've written for an hour than when I don't. And my life is not going to be forever. And how lucky are we? And I mean this, you guys. And I don't mean to... Look, with my bestsellers, easy for me to say. But I don't... I mean this. We are blessed to have found something that when we do it daily, and we don't need a whole... We don't, my son's a rock and roll musician. I don't need the band and rehearsal time. I just need to show up with pencil, pen, paper, keyboard. That we found something that makes us so alive before we're dead. That's all you're going to get. I think on one level, we just have to think, like, if this is all I'm going to get, well, that's good enough. And then as soon as I did that myself, I got rich and fucking famous. <laughs> I got to get water. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just want to add one thing about George Garrett. I studied with him at Virginia, who Andre is talking about. And if you guys haven't read George Garrett, you have to read him. He's a fantastic writer, and unfortunately, he's dead now, but he's really charming, kind of like the old style of writer. And when I worked with him, I remember I was really excited when I published my first short story. And I remember he told me, oh, Paul, it's great when it's published. It's so much easier to edit it that way. (laughs) I was like, oh, damn. (laughs) Yeah. And then I'm going to get the timing wrong, but he told all of us, too, this story about one of his friends whose book is going to be coming out. And I'm not sure if it was six weeks or six months, and probably all these people would know better. But within that amount of time, if your book doesn't make it, they pull the book off the shelves and send it back to you. But his friend's book was like six weeks or six months from being published. It wasn't published yet. And the publisher sent him the letter like, we're sorry. It was not successful. It did not sell as many. We're going to send you back your copies. And they had to contact the publisher and be like, what? (laughs) And, you know, I love George for telling those stories. He's always really charming. He tell you all these really great things about writing. But I think he was also doing that just to try to help us see that the publishing game is different from the writing game and that these weird things are going to happen that are going to humiliate you or upset you. And just like Andre was talking about, like George didn't tell us that great thing about love about how you have to protect your heart. But I'm also just saying it because if you've not read George Garrett, you have to read him. And if you send me an email address to, like, I have a really great story. I have, like, a PDF of him that I can send out, which will make you addicted to George Garrett. Can I just do one quote from Garrett because it's writing the same thing that I'll shut up. Um, he wrote a lovely biography of James Jones. And um, James Jones, of course, wrote the world, uh, the world um, from here to eternity. While uh, in the Army in World War II in Hawaii, KP duty, you know, peeling 900 potatoes a day. And he was hiding the fact he was writing a novel because back then, if you were a man writing a novel, you were homosexual. And well, so, and but this, this, I love your Johnny business thing. I mean, this whole, you know, you got to have the the business side. And then, but what he said was so beautiful about Jones, about what he learned to do in the Army while writing from here to eternity, he, he learned to hold, and I was quoting this to Austin the other day, to hold his talent inside him like warm water between two cupped hands. Isn't that beautiful? Don't lose sight of the fact that this is a vicious capitalist culture that doesn't give two shits about you until you're on Oprah. <laughs> Said Oprah boy. And now it's three shits or, or what? <laughs> Well, I have some questions I could ask, but maybe we should have questions from the audience. Yeah. Does anyone have a question? Throw your hand in the air. Yes, back there. Is it Rachel? Yep. Yeah. Oh, something about the scope of your story struck me. And that is, you know, for all the survivors, your 
try to spend that year writing this. Oh, hey, I got an idea for you for a book. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to start out that way, but you ended up that way. I did. With your husband. What does it say about that 10 years that you were like ready for that and, and knew the value? Yeah, it's still a little embarrassing. Um, actually, my when I called my agent the next day, um, in response to that email, you know, she said, you know, she said, this I can't believe you came up with this. This is amazing. This fixes all your problems. And I had to come clean about both my husband that that was his idea and that I had twins in the same conversation. And. Um, and then I actually asked her, I was like, does his name have to go on the book cover? <laughs> but I think that's a, that's a good question because I think, and actually you said this in, in class, I think either today or yesterday, um, which is a good point. If you have people weighing in on your creative process too early in your creative process, it sends you off kilter too quickly. I think I found that for myself. I've seen that with folks that I've worked with. Um, but I think at that stage in the game, well, first of all, I was so exhausted that I did not care anymore. Um, but second of all, I think that I was able to take his idea and apply it in a way that it became not entirely my idea. I mean, it was definitely his idea, but I, I was able to apply it in a way that it became mine and it became the stories. Um, and I don't think I would have been able to do that earlier in my writing process. That was just because I had been writing. I mean, I had been writing for years and years and years every day, long, long days by that point in time. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how. I think it's. I think it's just being um, willing, and that also comes back to something else you said. You've said a lot of good things this week. It's only been two days. Um, yeah, um, about how you have to be. You were talking about receptivity, right? Was that the right word? Yeah. Um, and about how you have to be in this right this space to to write well. And one of the things is you have to be open to what comes, and that's what came down the pike. And I ran with it, and and it worked. Um, and it was a gift, really. Yes. Yes, it does still feel like my story. I mean, he he was able to see it from such an outside point of view because he was not involved in the process at all until you know a couple months before that he read the book. What I thought was the final draft, you know, before she well, but before she said that it wasn't working, he had read. So it'd been like whatever six months. Um, so he was not involved. So he could see it from such a bigger place that I couldn't. Um, and he has that talent which is why he can never leave me (laughs) and what you said about you have to fail sometimes before you see the idea that's going to fix your book like I when I first wrote my book I had like perspective of every single character in the book and I teach a class where I say if it's your first novel perhaps you don't want to do omniscient (laughs) and but it took me writing it and failing till someone said why don't you just limit it to one or two perspectives and that's what fixed it but I wouldn't have listened to you if you told me that before I wrote it because I was like it's going to have this so you have to try and fail before you're ready to make the choices that are going to make it a good book yeah and to add to that I wrote that book I think at least 30 drafts dramatically different drafts and so I failed in all sorts of ways um 
over and over and over. But that's how I learned. And, you know, I think a part of that was being um, really isolated in Alaska um, and then even isolated here when I first moved here because I didn't really know anybody. And um, I may not seem like it, but I'm a little bit shy. And uh, <laughs> he and so I, w- I think just trying things was I'm also an experiential learner, I think. So just trying things, you know, I'm going to try this. And then I would realize that it wasn't working and then be fine with throwing out 50 pages or 100 pages or a whole character you know, just not being very attached to it, just learning. Using a book to learn, I think, is one of the best things that you can do. Yeah. Do we have another question? Yes. So I'm wondering about the rejection issue, like a little precursor to the rejection once you send the letters out. Because I have a tendency... It's a precursor to what? Well, you, re- you reject yourself first? So I reject myself... I have a quote from uh, Elizabeth Gilbert for you. You so finish your question. I don't have a problem with people sending me back stuff saying, sorry, good luck. But how do you reject yourself? I mean, you, you won't send it to a bunch. I, I hesitate to send because I feel like if it takes 100 letters to send out, why am I doing this? Oh, I have so many stories. Do you hear what she said? Um, if it, yeah. Go ahead. But she said if it takes 100 letters to send out, how, how good can it be is what you're yeah, saying, right? Yeah. I want so to address that. But All of the good Gilbert. books are 100 rejections. But Elizabeth Gilbert wrote about this specific thing. Um, she wrote, It has never been easy for me to understand why people work so hard to create something beautiful but then refuse to share it with anyone for fear of criticism. Wasn't that the point of the creation, to communicate something to the world? So put it out there. Send your work off to agents and editors as much as possible. Show it to your neighbors. Plaster on the walls of the bus stops. Just don't sit on your work and suffocate it. At least try. And when the powers that be send back your manuscript, and they will, take a deep breath and try again. I often hear people say, I'm not good enough yet to be published. That's quite possible, probable even. All I'm saying is, let someone else decide that. Magazines, editors, agents, they all employ young people making $22,000 a year whose job it is to read through piles of manuscripts and send you back letters telling you that you aren't good enough yet. Let them do it. Don't pre-reject yourself. That's their job, not yours. Your job is only to write your heart out and let destiny take care of the rest. What she said. (laughs) But can I tell you a quick story about William Kennedy? So William Kennedy, if you haven't read the Albany novels, you've got to read Kennedy's, especially uh, Billy Phelan's greatest game, Iron Weed and Legs. And they're all great. They're amazing. So he's, he's published two or three novels, and he's got this novel, Ironweed, and it goes to – it's at its 17th publisher, and it's Viking Press. And Viking Press cinema – probably a fake personal letter like that. Basically, thank you, no, you piece of shit garbage. And, and Kennedy knew Saul Bellow. And, or saw him, I don't know what the connect, but he told Bellow about it. He says, get out of here. That's my publisher. Get, I'm going to get on the phone. So Nobel Prize winning Saul Bellow. Oh, no. He, Bellow had read the manuscript. So Bellow calls Viking and says, what is your problem? This is one of the best American novels I've read in years. What do you mean you rejected it? Oh, well, if Saul Bellow thinks it's good, maybe it's good. And they publish it, and it wins the Pulitzer Prize for fiction that year. So, I mean... This falls, one of the things I, 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 we really, this is my Johnny business. I'm my own, I like, I actually like being Johnny business because I used to be a boxer and I love to fuck with these people. <laughs> While we're on the business then, please do not, do not ever, ever forget this. And we do all the time and I don't know why. The entire multi-trillion dollar industry of film, TV, publishing, books, every part of it does not exist 
without us weirdos. <laughs> the entire thing. It's like we're the bones, the blood, the drummer in the fucking band. We're everything. And they're treating us like we're just showing who are you? Excuse me, you work for me is what I am. And, and I really think it's important to yes. cultivate an F you. Excuse me, I swear too much. But you really need to cultivate. You have to always remember that. You work for me, actually, when you put it this way. And, and so the, a part of you has to, to do that. And then let go of it and write something new and don't think about it ever again. But I love what Gilbert said. She's great. Okay. Um, back there. Yeah. First of all, thank you all. This is awesome. Loving it. Um, that I think it was you, Jenny, that quote about you have to become good enough to know, to fix, and to take the feedback, but across the verse, you're enough to keep going. So would love your thoughts on, like, the secret sauce and how do you find that balance and how do you know when maybe you do suck and maybe you <laughs> 10, 20, 30 revisions, you know, what are the best sources for getting that honest input to, to figure it out? So if you can't hear a question, she asked, how do you, how do you figure out um, whether it's good enough to keep putting up with the rejections or, or whether you should pull it and revise? Um, well, I use Paula. <laughs> I said it to Paula, and she tells me when it's time. Um, I don't know. What do you guys do? Get feedback from people. I send it to Jenny. <laughs> Um, I think I just have always, uh, this is a good question because there's been lots and lots and lots of really low moments where I thought, what am I doing? This is, I have been wasting my time. I've been wasting everyone's time, my family's time, my time. What have I been doing? But really what I've been doing is learning how to observe and live in the world as a writer, which has made me into a different person. That's really what I've been doing. I haven't been writing to publish, even though that's what I was aiming for. That's what I was trying. I was sending out manuscript after manuscript. Um, but I think when I started to get into that 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 rut of you know like I'm on draft 35 maybe I really suck at this maybe I should have played volleyball or something you know become a banker and worn nice shoes or I don't know so I think I think when you get into that rut the best thing to do is just is well Jenny and I were talking about this is to figure out what your definition of success is what is your definition of success for me it's to write the very best book that I can write at that moment and to also keep pushing into what's the next level what's the next you know what's the next thing that I can open what's the next door I can open in my writing another quote from this guy over here, the smart one. Um, but what's the next thing I can do to keep to keep pushing at it, to keep making it more interesting for me, more interesting for a potential reader, um, but mostly more interesting for me? Um, and that always gets me out of that that place of you know I must be really bad at this because I think no matter what stage you're at, it doesn't matter. You're all there's always going to be some feedback from someone out there. You know any anybody in the you know anybody with a computer can write some crap on Amazon about your book. <laughs> you know so it's not even as though you get to some stage and it all stops, I think. So you just have to figure out where, like, you know, sort of that division of, like, what is it for you? Because it's really a process. It's for you. Um, and then it, eventually it's out in the world and it's its own thing. But really it's, it's yours for a long time. And so to feel good and solid in that, um, I think that's what gets me out of that bad space. And, and what I'm hearing in, in your answer, Rachel, is um, something we need to talk about more, which is solitude. I have to say it. One of the dangers of doing this kind of thing too often, I think it's great to do it once or twice a year for a week. One of the dangers of being in a writing group 
or being around a bunch of writers and sharing your work is that's really not my father god rest his brilliant soul had a beautiful metaphor he said look um writers are like whales sounding you know when a whale sounds it goes underwater you know it's a mammal who breathes air but holds its breath for what weeks or months i don't know a long freaking time <laughs> might be an hour but it's a long time and i and i and i do think that a lot of us um Come up for air too quickly. We really need to go down. Look, I, I, it takes me three to five years to write a novel. I'm in the third year of this new one. It's a holy goddamn mess. It's, it, it's failing far more than it's succeeding artistically. I can tell you that. Um, I worked on it today, and um, I was going to just go drinking for five hours instead of the run in the panel in the water. And this is normal. I read this lovely essay from Philip Lopate. He said, look... Um, if you're going to write about yourself, he's talking about memoir and personal essay, he said, you must avoid the stench of the ego. And I love that. It's a great way to live your life. So you'd better be able to hear criticism. There's nothing better than a great editor. One of my great sadnesses about people self-publishing too soon, after maybe five rejections or only five years of rejections instead of 30 years of rejections, is they miss the editor. And that's such a beautiful part of the process. All my books are better because of editors. So... But you're, what you're asking is that the difference between um, being F you, you work for me, and avoiding the stench of the ego and actually listening to good notes that will improve your book. Um, you're not going to know is my point. What's your first name? Bonnie. Bonnie I think we are, we are hurting. Look. If you are constantly every three weeks asking someone's opinion about your work, you're not sounding long enough. I think you need to spend two, three years not showing your damn project to anyone because that's when you begin to, to build the muscle that tells you whether it's good or not. And another thing that I think is really helpful is looking at the word revise. Of course, you know it means to see again. How can I revise if I just looked at this two days ago? Put it aside for one year and again. Or in order to do that, you've got to let go of your desire to be a winner. You've got to let go of your desire to have a book. I actually try not to write a book, and my, my, my family's financial health is dependent upon me writing a book. But I try not to think of it as a book. I just try to be this woman. I try to be a woman today in the scene. I don't even think of her as a character. She's, I'm just trying to be her. And I think, Bonnie, that's how it's done. By you, not by anyone else. And you're not going to develop that... That ability, if, if we keep asking other people their opinion too soon, you really need to, to go for years at a time without asking any. Look, I worked four or five years on a book. My wife's my soulmate. We've been together 26 years. I never tell her a damn thing. How's your book going? Oh, it sucks. I want to go jump off a bridge, but let's go eat. You know, this is, I don't know if I helped. But. My husband still hasn't read my book, and I'm okay with it. He's my, hus- he's my husband. He hasn't read your my- published book? No. He's my husband. He's not my editor. He yeah. tried to read it, and he's like, there's a lot of characters in it. And I was like, just stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are other parts of your marriage that are very good. <laughs> I don't need him to be my book buddy. I have my book buddies. <laughs> She's sitting right next to you, yeah. too. Um, I have one quick thing to add, though. I think it's also just trusting your gut. I think you do know deep down if something's still not working. And even though I do agree that you need the solitude and time to just kind of write and be by yourself and figure it out, that is the handy thing about being in a class or writing group is when people say things back to you and you have that moment where it hits you and you know that they're right. And I think that we do know deep down when something's just not working, but it does help to hear it from somebody else. And I think if you do get in that mode of submitting to journals, it can be handy for just kind of getting forward momentum and writing and sending something out. And then it takes so long, you just set it aside, you don't look at it. 
When the rejections start coming out, you pull it out again, you read it through, you read it out loud, you read it printed, and you make some more changes. And a lot of, like, one of my writing teachers, Lucia Berlin, who's a really great writer, and finally her short story collection is going to be republished again. Um, I remember, like, looking in her books, and she would have edits through her published books. And I know a lot of writers who have edits in their published books or who go on readings. And so it is that fine line, because we're always going to mess with stuff. We tend to be perfectionists. It's never going to be perfect. So you have to get to that point where you know in your gut the story's done, and if you're stalling and not moving on to something else. Or if you just need to set it aside for all, and you'll see it in that new way that Andre is talking about. Another question? Yes, Rebecca. Um, okay, well, so, right. Thank you all for being so kind. Uh, right, we're, we're there. Um, uh, so Jenny was talking about Johnny Business, and so uh, you guys are all prose people, and so the poets have the Poe biz. So I guess my question is, um, how often, when, or how do you put on the Johnny Business hat? Okay, so she asks, how often, when and how do you put on the Johnny Business hat? Um, not nearly as much as you're writing. It should be like a very minimal part. Any more than 10% of your time is probably too much. I think the writing is where you put all your time, and then you do the business when you have to do the business. <laughs> Are you a poet? I am. God bless you. <laughs> She's a good poet. Because you're a poet. <laughs> Only Billy Collins has an agent. <laughs> I read poetry every day. I just need to have you know my poet. What's your name? Lynn. Hi, Lynn. I've been reading poetry every day for 20-something years. I own, like, I don't know, 600 volumes of poetry. Just want you to know. Because you haven't read my chapbook. Yeah, well, I need to. I don't know. I, I, I'm with Ginny. I, I, I mean, you, you, you do when you need to. I mean, what, what's happened to me late too, is, is uh, and it's a good problem to have, but... Uh, the, other things come in, you know, like tax stuff and speaking and, and all this. And it's all good. It's a good problem to have. But I have to tell you, I don't read the New York Times book review. I sometimes write reviews to them, but I don't read it. I avoid most things that make me career conscious because I am susceptible to everything I'm telling you guys not to be susceptible to. You teach what you need to learn. I avoid I – try. I, look, we need to protect ourselves. We need to protect – that baby growing inside of us, whether it's your male or female writer, that baby, that novel, that poem, that story, that's you're, – you're, you're, see, I don't think it's for us even. I think it's for them. It's for the characters. It's for their story. I feel it's a sacred calling when they show up. And our job is to protect them and it. And, and so I do a lot to protect myself. Uh, and sometimes if, if it's 20, 30 percent of my time is dealing with emails about – you know, good problems to have, movie stuff, fucking shit like that. I, I don't do it anymore because I get too career conscious. I get too worried about the reflection of myself in some cultural mirror. And I, I don't ever – I don't do any social media. I don't – I never have. I've, I'm never going to – I've never tweeted, twatted, whatever the hell it is. I'm, I've never texted. I, in, in many ways, I'm a Luddite. I'm going to just go a beard to my balls and live on an island. But I, but I, I do think I'm saying this sincerely. You must protect yourself. And, and, and the way I need to protect myself, and to quote George Garrett, that warm water between two cupped hands, I try to stay away from things that remind me that I'm a writer with books and that some people don't like me and my work. That hurts my feelings. I don't read reviews anymore. I'm totally susceptible to this shit because a, a good review will make me feel like I've had too much coffee for like a month. 
You know, and a bad review will hurt my feelings for 300 years. And it'll screw up my... Pro- Wait a minute. That reviewer, and she's really smart, said I used too many adverbs. I just used one. Oh, shit. And I'm out of it. I don't know. Protect yourselves. It's dangerous out there. It's full of slime. Yes. I... That was right at... Could you guys talk about the stupid freaking platform? The, the stupid freaking platform. Oh, I'd love to. Well, oh... Well, you need to have those if you're writing nonfiction, especially. It's not as important for fiction, though it does come in handy, and I think maybe just work on your book. Um, (laughs) But I do social media and stuff, but I just keep it to my Can you define it for those who don't know what this platform platform is? When you're trying to get your book published, um, they look to see where else you have published, and if you're on social media, how many friends you have, and how they can market you and sell your book. And so that I've heard that you need that for a nonfiction book, especially to make a sale. But um, for fiction, it's not as important, though I think it helps. And I, I just say keep that stuff to your 10%. I do social media and Twitter, and it, it helps me. Um, but I limit it. I have a time limit. But can I – what's your first name we Kathy. met? Kathy, yes. Quickly. I get so angry. <laughs> and let's just speak freely, shall we? Yes. A hardcover book costs $25. You spend five years writing that book. Somebody buys it. You get $2.50. So mother effers, thank you for making this book public by publishing it. But I'm not doing your job. I'm not going to go do a fucking platform. You earn your $23.50. Thank you very much. Because I'm busy writing another book. That's what I say. Seriously, don't do it. I know it's easy for me to say I've got readers and stuff, but I, I don't think we need. I think it's really wrong for them to put for publishers to put this on writers. Screw you! You're the publisher. Go work for a living. God damn it! I get so mad. You try writing a novel, you asshole. Who wrote that? Didn't even write that damn rejection letter. That's another thing. Oh, slow me down. You have to protect yourselves. You have to protect your art. You've got to protect your characters. You really do. Okay, do we have another question? Someone's got to incite Andre to another. <laughs> it's just writers are really disrespected. It's really shocking to me that that it, it's literally true what I said. The entire trillion-dollar industry of TV, film, Broadway, off-Broadway, publishing, magazines, and newspapers do not exist without writers. We are the creators of it all. But how do you take your power back then? I mean, how do we do it? Because, like you said, you, 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 have, you have readers and stuff, but right. some of us don't. And <laughs> let, let me tell you something that happened. Um, I wrote an essay about, I think, my daughter's birth, and the New York Times magazine wanted to publish it in their, their last page thing, and they wanted to give me like 3000 bucks, which was big money for, in my 20s or 30s, and in, into my 40s. And... Um, and he wanted to cut about half of it out to fit into the New York Times. This is a good example. Um, to me, it was like, wait a minute. It is 712 words long for just the right reason. And it's all aesthetic and artistic. And I worked seven months on that essay. And it was like being asked to cut it. And, and you see these, these requests with the business side of all of this all the time. It's like... 
a beautiful red convertible drives by, and they want to bring the whole family for a ride, but I'm afraid the little boy's legs will have to go. <laughs> you know, fuck you when you're convertible. And I said no thank you to the New York Times. I don't think he had ever heard a no. He said, it was on the phone. This is back when we just talked on the phone. Excuse, excuse me? Nah, I'm going to go somewhere else. Uh, what? I said, I, 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 it, this essay doesn't need cutting. You're just cutting it to make more room for a Rolex ad. I'm going to go sell it in a quarterly for contributor copies and, and sleep well tonight. And I did. And that's how, that's how you take your power back, frankly. Not to pat myself on the back. Ladies, any ideas about how to take your power back? Oh, we have an Erica question. Yeah, Erica. Um, so we all know the Vita stats about 25% of the market share of publications going to women and 75 going to men. And I was wondering, if, and I know I've gotten some very gendered re- rejection letters that spoke to basically like my place as a woman writer as opposed to, you know, just being a writer. So I was wondering if you've had experiences with that in... Um, how, you, if so, how you deal with them or how you deal with just the fact that we have such a small and basically like um, such a small voice and, and we're also told how to have our voice, with, you know, or we get rejected. Can you, you know give an example of what a uh, gendered rejection sounds like? Um, well, <laughs> with my book um, that, you know, I four publishers who wanted it, but their marketing departments kept saying, well, it's not chiclet. It doesn't fit into the, it's not chiclet. It's not really a market women. So what is this book? Because, you know, worse, there's been a recent analysis that like award book winners, not only like who's writing it, but what the characters are. Did you, yeah, you know this? Yeah. Paula knows it. Tell us the rest. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just like, it's like an analysis of award-winning books the main characters were male. Well, yeah, that's true. And so I think we change it. We change it by buying women's books, speaking up about them, and supporting them. Right? That's the only way to change it is by buying books and voting for them with your money and your support it. Yeah, I'm just kind of wondering how you metabolize that as a writer and how you... You asked him about his dick size. Seriously, put it back in his face. Can I just tell you, am I alone? I am so offended by the phrase chiclet. I guess I read chiclet. In other words, I read character-driven fiction written by women and men. I find it so, so offensive to even... I have to say, I don't know why women who read... You know, 80% of literary book buyers are women. 80%. You know, I go to book clubs. Uh, there are, you know... 23 women and the guy serving the wine married to one of the women. <laughs> but I do mean that. I, I, I think it's important to, to fight it. And, and, and when they write character-driven fiction with... Well, I know, but I, I, think in the, I think we have to... You have to just... I think you would, I would go nuts on just the use of that phrase, chiclet. What is chiclet? Who are you? Chiclet. I find it so insulting. I'm, I'm sorry. I find it insulting that black people use the N-word again, too. Chicklet is not <laughs> I like that. I think... If you're a woman and you are writing, you're expected to write domestic fiction. So for those of us who 
yeah. as you don't. It's, it, it's mm. harder. Mm. And I, why do you say, what's your first name, by the way? Erica. But Erica, why do, you, why do you say that, that women are expected to write domestic fiction? I was I I was too. Told Told by whom? We're told. Uh, Agents, editors. Because, well, well, Erica wrote a book about a badass woman fighter. Which is on sale back there. Which is awesome. It's called Contenders. Contenders. I'm going to get that Um, sucker. And then then I wrote a book about a woman who, you know, cruises around and drives boats and runs chainsaws and lives on her... Own in so the domestic nowhere. fiction, my ass. So right, but I but I got the same kind of feedback. Like why? Yeah, yeah. So why? <laughs> I the type of feedback I got from a, a few. Not I wouldn't say that many, but I definitely did get it. The same that you're talking about was, you know, you're a woman. Why isn't why isn't love the main driving force of your book? You know, and there, there there's some love in there and stuff, but. <laughs> You know, I was like, love well, of boats. Yeah. <laughs> like, why? Well, does it have to be? I don't know. I think my response was mostly like, I, I don't want to work with you ever. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And so I just ignored it. And I would say that the majority of, just like you said, like the majority of the, I've been, I did, I made the, I don't know if it was a mistake or not, but I wrote to 750 book clubs and said, Hey, if you guys will read my book, I'll Skype into your conversation for free. Don't do that. Um, so then I was Skyping into conversations for like four a week in my basement. <laughs> it was like the only clean space behind me in my whole house. And so I'd sit in my basement and answer the exact same questions, but it's, it's women that are reading my book and they're, they're connecting with the character. They don't care that there's not, you know, it's not love based or whatever. It doesn't, matter you know and it's and it's women from all over the country so i feel like those people just don't know what they're talking about like they're they're reading the they're reading the people that are buying the books wrongly they're yeah, you know they're guessing with, wrong with my book too i had an opportunity to get a bigger publisher than i did but they wanted it to be this women's imprint and then change it around with the woman more emphasized and i said no yeah. good choice good choice <laughs> And even Cheryl Strayed with Mam- with um, Wild, she talked about how they wanted to make it pink and they wanted to change the cover. And I mean, she had enough clout; people were excited about her book that she got to choose her hiking boot and to make it her own. But I think if you're starting out, I think it's a little hard not to go on those routes. And I've known a lot of really great women writers who just went into YA because that's where they were pushed to go to. And like our friend Jessie, who she was told like send it to Crickets or like highlights where I do think if it was a male writer I don't think they would have gotten that response and I don't think we realize how deeply ingrained that is in our culture and yes it's about supporting and buying those books but it's also hard to know like when those books are out there because they aren't getting reviewed as much there are also those statistics of how often women writers are being reviewed and they're not in your bookstores as much so I think it's just trying to be aware and finding out the books that are out there and supporting it and trying to change that culture since we are buying most of them all right I'm going to say a very dangerous thing in front of a room full of women but it, it, it comes to my larger macroscopic thing I'm trying to say, whether, we're, whether we have vaginas or penises with our pencils in our hands. And that is, I think a healthy dose, dose of ignorance is really important. I, 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 I purposely don't want to know these things. On one level, my daughter is a poet. I, I, I want to know that for her because I want to fight for her. But she can fight for herself. She's a tough chick. I just said chick and from a bunch of women. I'm from the 70s. Um... <laughs> That was a compliment. Um, but don't you think, Erica, that, that look, my fear is if, we, if, we, if, we're con- if we're concentrating too much on what these business majors and English majors who work in publishing houses have to say about our creativity, we're going to write for them instead of the people, the, the, the spirits who choose us 
called characters. Our job is to just, here's what I know. And, I, and, and do you guys agree or not? Yeah. Cream rises. A good book will find a home. A good book will always find a home. It, it just will. You know, uh, God, imagine if, um, what's her name, E. Annie Prue was listening to this stuff. We'd never have, what's that great short story? Shipping news. Shipping news or actually, we wouldn't have any of her work. On and on. Joyce Carol Oates, on and on. And that's what I'm saying. I do think a good dose of ignorance is important. And, and normally I wouldn't say that. To be, you know, for, forewarned is forearmed. But does anyone disagree? Feel, feel, feel free. You do. Go ahead. What's your first? What's your first name? Danielle. Hi, Danielle. But but you're saying, but you are saying, right? But but you're. Did you just contradict yourself? But you're saying don't. But don't don't be thinking about this when you're writing your novel, right? Right. But after it's done, bring Johnny Business out. Yeah, this will take care of it. <laughs> yeah, Johnny will take care of business. So we have time, Andrea. How much time? We have one more. One more question. Yeah. Well, can I just say one quick thing to Daniel's point? So I did get some of that feedback, but I also ended up at a place where no one, no one said anything about anything pink or anything like any like girled up anything, you know. So, you know, you I do think that um, you do have to just have some faith that that you will what you're trying to do will be recognized and appreciated somewhere out there in also, the in the world yeah, of New York. I also found the place of no pink. And um, it, it, yeah, and maybe it's maybe you aren't going to publish with the top the major publishers, but you're going to publish your good book um, with someone that cares about it, and that's yeah. more important. I was just going to say a yeah. lot of really talented women who are doing out of the box stuff are at small presses, like Rachel and Erica, and they're not getting to the big press because the big press won't do it. Yeah, yeah. Because the publishing industry is mostly women, I think, are majority women. So it's not about the gender of the person you're dealing with. It's just, I think, you just try the next press. Just don't get hung up on what any one person says because maybe they're just sending you a form letter that's meant to look like a non-form letter. <laughs> you don't know. I think in this case, it was too irate to be a form letter that wasn't, you know. 
So send it to the next place. Nasty letters, they're usually not form letters. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're personal. <laughs> Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.